but when I think of the word, what do you see? What do you, how would what, what how would you describe this? No, I mean I'm not trying to be crude. What how what what is this thing? How like what? Well, what device what device is this thing right here? Yeah, it's an endovaginal phantom, right? Well, um, that's exactly what I I googled vaginal phantom, okay? And look what came up. Really weird when you Google that. <laughs> vaginal phantoms. Um, so I don't know if I've made the formal announcement yet, but these are the two, the two new fellows uh, coming in next year. I think, I'll tell you right now, for me, the creepiest thing, the weirdest thing that, about this picture that, that uh, is so out of the ordinary is how clean-shaven Art is in that picture because clearly that has nothing to do with how he normally uh, looks. Um, that's kind of weird. So this is um, this is Mervis showing a very early interest in ultrasound. You know what happened was I went to um, to to show some funny pictures. I went to their Facebook accounts, and I don't have your Facebook. You may not even have a Facebook. Have, yeah. So unfortunately, most that's right. it's under Art Nosefian. So unfortunately, most of the pictures have to do with Mervis. I couldn't really get a lot of Art. So. But that's a cool picture of Mervis doing a very early ultrasound. Many, many of you didn't know that he was so geeked out on ultrasound here teaching students in Mexico how to do an ultrasound. And, and you know, in general, Mervis is just kind of a loving guy, you know, I would say. It's a great shirt. And he's got a very strange side to him that he proudly posts on his uh, Facebook. But um, <laughs> it is disturbing. Now I can see why you don't have a Facebook, because uh, your, your pictures would be worse, probably. Anyways. Um, so what we're going to do first is we're going to watch a video of how the vaginal phantom works, okay, which is coming up on the next slide. And then, one by one, um, we're going to pick out residents to go into my office and practice using the vaginal phantom. There's, there's, and Nagin uh, is going to help you, you know, kind of walk you through it. And then, so as I'm kind of going through these cases over the next hour or so, you guys will kind of pop out and do that. But first of all, this is how the, the phantom works. This is a little video I found on the Internet about it. The purpose of this instructional video is to provide a systematic approach to the endovaginal ultrasound examination using high-fidelity simulation. In order to provide patient safety, an ultrasound sheet is applied over the endovaginal transducer. Make sure to apply gel inside and outside of the sheath to avoid air bubbles that could compromise image quality. In the longitudinal plane, follow the endometrial stripe from the cervix to the uterine fundus by moving the probe in a vertical plane. When the probe is posteriorly positioned, for example, the back of the probe is upright, the cervix is visualized. As we scan anteriorly by moving the probe downward, the uterine fundus comes into view. So this is the um, the endometrium right here, coming across. Continuing in the longitudinal plane, sweep the ultrasound probe towards the adnexa to define the lateral borders of the uterus. So they sweep all the way past until they don't see the uterus anymore. 
Once the uterus is defined in a longitudinal plane, rotate the probe 90 degrees into a coronal plane. Where the indicator goes to the patient's right leg. In the coronal plane, sweep the ultrasound probe posteriorly to anteriorly to visualize the uterus from the cervix to the fundus. Some physicians find that visualizing the ovaries can be difficult. Here are some technical pointers to help you better visualize the ovaries. In the longitudinal plane, while sweeping past the lateral border of the uterus towards the adnexa, gently advance the probe into the lateral fornix. This decreases the distance from the probe to the ovary, optimizing image quality. Two distinguishing landmarks of the ovary are the peripherally located follicles and the ovary's location adjacent to the iliac vessels. So there's an ovary there with the iliac. This ovary has a little cystic structure on it. This video provides a condensed overview of the endovaginal ultrasound using a pelvic simulator. Okay, so we're going to keep on going now. Um, actually, I remember where I got that video at first. I couldn't remember. It was just sitting on my hard drive. And I think they made that at Christ Hospital because, um, A, people had a pretty strong uh, Chicago accent in that video. And, B, uh, I recognized uh, some of those slides as being my fellowship director, Mike Lamberts. So we're going to start now just with the basic summary where I left off last time. And I think this summary is, uh, is helpful. Um, I'm having a problem with the mouse. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to change, change the setting really quick on the computer to fix that problem because that's, that's a little bit weird. Yeah, it's just a, um, I know exactly what I did. I can, I can turn it back to the way I had it. it. It doesn't like what I did. Usually what I try to do is make the mouse bigger so you guys can see what I'm pointing at easier. But um, okay. Let's see if this is better now. Does it still do it? No, it's not doing it anymore. Okay. Uh, but the slide is cut off. Look at that. <laughs> Hold on a second here. Wait, it did, did this before? I don't know if it did. What's the, why is it doing that? That's weird. Uh, oh, I see the, I think I see the problem. Hold on, let me, I'm going to change, change the setting here. There we go. Kind of chopped off the top a little, but uh, who cares? Whatever, this, this should work. Okay, so um, when you have a live, so you can break down the pregnancies to five categories, right? Live intrauterine pregnancy, early intrauterine pregnancy, abnormal, ectopic, or you can't find it anywhere. And so live is you've got that gestational sac; it's at least five millimeters of internal diameter, and um, there's a um, a, um, a fetal pole in there. Uh, with cardiac act activity to make it a live uh, intrauterine pregnancy. So there's a little fetal pole with cardiac activity. To be an early intrauterine pregnancy, you've got to have a gestational sac that's at least five millimeters of internal diameter um, with either a little grain of rice, fetal pole, or a little circle, which is the yolk sac. Yolk sac comes first right at about five and a half weeks. Fetal pole comes about six weeks. Cardiac activity another half week after that, six and a half weeks in that order typically. 
Um, now, if you have an abnormal IUP, which once you make this diagnosis, 100% of the time this goes on to become a miscarriage, then the gestational sac just keeps on growing and growing and growing, but doesn't grow a fetal polar yolk sac. Once that gestational sac grows all the way up to 10 millimeters, doesn't have a, and it's empty, the gestational sac is empty, doesn't have a fetal polar yolk sac in it, then that's an abnormal IUP. The patient's pregnant, but they're not going to have um, a live birth. The other diagnosis or definition of abnormal IUP is when you've got a gestational sac, I should say, when you've got a, um, a fetal pole that measures at least five millimeters in crown rump length, but doesn't have a heartbeat yet. So by the time the fetal pole gets all the way up to five millimeters, it should have a cardiac flicker. And if it doesn't, 100% of the time, it's gonna be a miscarriage. Okay, regardless of what the beta, and we all know how ridiculous the beta is after all these articles that are coming out now. So basically, so that's useful. I find that, that one right there, abnormal IUP, IUP, to be very useful to patients because, you know, they come in, they've got vaginal bleeding, and I'm worried that they're having ectopic. They're worried that they're having a miscarriage. And once I land on the diagnosis of abnormal IUP, I know for sure they're not having an ectopic, and I can tell them for sure they're having a miscarriage. Okay, so that's why I think this criteria is important because... Um, I mean, emergency physicians end up becoming the sort of the de facto experts of the first trimester of pregnancy. I mean, OBGYN, you know, they eventually make it to OBGYN, but they come to us first, and so we need to be able to really own this stuff. So are we supposed to measure and, like, kind of... Yeah, I drop calipers on these, on these gestational sacs and fetal poles, yep. I don't like, as you know, I don't like dropping calipers on stuff. I usually just eyeball most of what I do in ultrasound. This is when I actually stop and I, uh, I drop calipers on it. And again... Now, if you That is correct. Once you see cardiac flicker inside the gestational sac, there's no reason to start measuring stuff, unless you want to tell the patient how pregnant they are. And then you could do a crown rump length if it's you know in the first eight weeks or so of pregnancy. The calipers will tell you when you can't measure them. In other words, if you have a 16-week pregnancy and you're trying to do crown rump length on it, you'll get out to about, I forgot, 12 weeks or so, and then you keep dragging the caliper from the crown to the rump, and then it just says XXXXX on the bottom. And then you get to bring it back, and once it's like, so it's only accurate. Crown rump's only accurate to a certain gestational age, and then you got to switch to something else, like um, bipedal diameter, femur length, abdominal circumference, head circumference, that kind of stuff. So, which I don't, you know, um, whatever. So ectopic pregnancy is when you've—it's just like an intrauterine, but to make the actual diagnosis of ectopic pregnancy, you need a five-millimeter gestational sac um, with a um, fetal polar yolk sac. Um, within that gestational sac, but this time it's, of course, outside the uterus. And then if, if you have somebody who doesn't meet any of that criteria, in other words, um, the gestational sac didn't reach 5 millimeters yet, you know, or um, it's just basically an empty-looking uterus, okay, then you have uh, the diagnosis of no definitive injury in pregnancy. And so what does that mean? What does that tell you? Well, that tells you that the patient could have one of three things. What could it be? Could be ectopic, right? Early IUP, or the baby already fell out, right? Already had a miscarriage. That's why the uterus is empty. And so you try to get some more history, which, you know, the history is all over the place with these patients. And so it's kind of hard to figure out exactly what's going on in this situation. And all I can tell you is that it depends on your patient population as to the risk of whether or not they're actually having an ectopic. So if you have a patient population that's very high with PID, um, 
then the chance of being ectopic are much higher. Um, and so if you look at certain populations like downtown Los Angeles at Martin Luther King Hospital when they used to have an emergency department, they had a 40% ectopic rate in patients who had this diagnosis no definitive IUP. Okay, and a lot of those patients like loss of follow-up and stuff, and they're kind of sketchy. So in those patients, if you have somebody who's sort of got risk factors for an ectopic, uh, and they're sort of sketchy, and they're kind of lost of follow-up, even if they have stable vital signs in the setting of no definitive IUP, I think it's reasonable to contact OBGYN and say, hey, this is just somebody I want to pull the reins in on getting better follow-up with. But if you've got somebody who's got really good follow-up, no ectopic risk factors, stable vital signs, um, I think it's reasonable to have this patient leave the emergency department with ectopic precautions and uh, follow up as an outpatient. With or without? Without, if they have, uh, and that's my own personal practice, uh, because um, I feel like if they're really um, a kind of patient that's going to follow up, then I am okay with them. If I feel like they are reliable, that's the word I've been trying to find, then I feel like if they're reliable, then I feel like I'm okay with sending them home as long as I give them strict per return precautions, ectopic precautions, and their file signs are stable. And in, the, in that situation, are you looking for a second beta to watch it come down to zero or not? Yeah, that's a great question. That's actually where I think the beta has its only utility, <laughs> is in a serial assessment like that in a 48 to 72 hour uh, place. Then it, it, and if it doesn't come down, let's say the beta was 300, and then it comes to two days later, it's you know, the same or trickle higher, then I think OBGYN at that point would act and give methotrexate uh, or, or do laparoscopy at that stage. And so I think the beta in that could be helpful. And if it's trending all the way down and the symptoms are ending, then yeah, then we, this, whatever it was is going away, whether it's ectopic or, or a miscarriage, it's going away. So um, that's the one place, and maybe with a, with a molar is the other place I'd find it. A, a beta helpful. And the third place I find a beta helpful is in the setting of a negative pregnancy test. Who was with me the other night? We had a, we had a serum beta of 81 and a negative urine pregnancy test. That was interesting. Yeah, we think she's probably having a miscarriage. That she had a miscarriage. She has some retained products. I think that was the one. We've had so much of this lately. I might be mixing it up. Um, so some other things to, to to take home on the slide, and this is, this is like the one slide that basically is the thing we all need to know for pelvic ultrasound. When a woman has an ovarian cyst, it's interesting how sometimes these cysts are symptomatic and other times they're not, okay? And so don't necessarily hang your hat on an ovarian cyst and think, oh, it's probably this and not appendicitis, for example. So just be a little wary there of ovarian cysts because every woman's different in this regard. And I could tell you the exact same thing is true for pelvic-free fluid. I go to look at in the pelvis sometimes, I see free fluid rolling all around and the patient's like looking around the room, you know, texting somebody, and they don't even notice it's there. Other times it's like there's a lot of chemical peritonitis going on. And so free fluid is all over the map too with regards to how symptomatic it can be. However, blood, when blood's in the peritoneum, it's always irritable. That always causes peritoneal signs, blood does. And so, and how does blood look on ultrasound? It's a continuum, right? It's like at first when it's just, Unclotted, rolling around in your, in your brains, uh, in your veins. It is. Um, <laughs> it's hopefully in your vein, in your brains. It's um, anechoic. It's jet black, right? But then once it crashes out of solution, once it congeals and makes that gelatinous matrix that is a clot, then it becomes more echogenic. It becomes very isoechoic. Okay, it looks like the liver, the spleen, which is why it's impossible, even when you see it on the CT scan, to see a subcapsular hematoma of the liver or the spleen because the blood and 
those organs look the same. Looks like thyroid, testicles, same thing. Once it's congealed. Um, what about ovarian torsion? How many times have I gotten the sign out? Uh, yeah, she's got some uh, pretty severe left floor pelvic pain. Um, I sent her down to ultra ultrasounds pending. Um, rule out torsion. As long as it comes back negative, I think that patient can go home. I'm out of here. See you later. And then I get the sign out, and I'm like, oof. You know, that's a little, don't take that, all right? So if you really think of, so first of all, I would go back in the room and examine that page for myself, okay? That's one of the times during the sign out where I get very involved, okay? With a case like that, I'm at the bedside, all right? That's a high-risk patient right there. So I go to the bedside, and if I get on my sense that this patient is really in a lot of pain, vomiting, symptoms of torsion, and the ultrasound comes back, normal blood flow to the ovary, that doesn't mean shit to me, okay? I just throw that out the window because... You can have varying degrees of torsion, right? First, you get venous torsion. So what happens to the ovary? Actually, it can get a little bit hyperemic, okay? It gets, oops, excuse me. It gets enlarged. It gets enlarged, and it gets hyperemic because it's just the venous. The artery, the artery is still pumping in there, so the thing is like getting big. It has venous congestion. It can't drain, right? So actually, if the, if the, if the report comes back 5-centimeter ovary, normal blood flow, hyperemic blood flow, boom, I'm like calling OB right away. To me, that's, a, that's becoming a positive study, okay? So is that your threshold, about 5 centimeters? No, uh, 2 by 2 by 3 centimeters of normal ovary. I just threw that number out because I know it's like twice the size of a normal ovary. Um, so I, if lack of blood supply in the symptomatic patient can rule it in, absolutely. But to rule it out, different story. So if you really think your patient's got torsion, the answer is visual rule out using laparoscopy, which we can't do, which we need our colleagues to help us with. So, if, And here it's really easy to get a consult, but if you're working someplace where you can't get a consult very easily like that, whew, that's a tough case. I mean, it may require you picking up the phone and calling uh, higher level care and say, I really think this person's torsion. I know the ultrasound report's normal, but the ovary's a little enlarged, and I'm worried about torsion. This woman, she's still vomiting, uh, and then it's trying to chase down an OBGYN that can help with the case. What if the ovary's Normal size goes against it, but if she's persistently symptomatic, um, I'm still going to pursue the diagnosis. If she's vomiting is the one thing. You look at all the torsion articles. There's a study by Graf that looked at 140 cases of torsion, and um, size had a lot to do with it, and blood flow did not, uh, and um, vomiting had a lot to do with it. 50% uh, of the patients had ovarian cysts. 50% didn't. So whether they should say, well, there's, there's no big cyst on the ovary. It's probably not torsing. That's not true. Half of all torsing cases don't have ovarian cysts. So, so it's, a clinic, purely clinical. it's a scary clinical gray area to be in, yeah. Can you not CT scan them or CTA? There was a study looking at size, grayscale, um, I should say, um, MRI. They looked at MR and ovaries just at the size of the ovary. They used MR because then they could just screen everybody and there's no radiation. There's less of an IRB issue. And... Um, I can't remember the numbers in that study, but I think MR, the size really did play into. If you had a normal-sized ovary, you felt much, much more uh, confident about sending that patient home. Mark, are you going to say something? No, I, I, I agree that it's a tough, because this is one of the things where the advanced imaging doesn't help us. It's like a CT angio in a high-risk pulmonary uh, embolism patient. If it's negative, if you st still have a high suspicion, then you're caught between a rock and a hard place. You have to make a judgment on whether to pursue it. Yeah. The size of the ovary is a good additional piece of information to throw in the equation. If she stops vomiting, the size is normal, I'd send her home. If she's persistently vomiting, I think you have a case on your hand to, to try to find an OB consult. 
Is there a particular size that'll make you call OB? Like I know you said two by two by three, but is there, I don't know, it's like four or five? I mean, I, no, there's no cutoff for me. Just, it's, I wish I could tell you once it's four, I'm calling every time, but I don't, I don't have a sense of that. It's so rare. It's hard to say, well, my, fifth, my first 50 cases of torsion, absolutely. I definitely, I didn't worry about the size. And now my, my second 50 and the third 50, I do, you know, it's just a, it's tough. The articles. Hey, yo. Plenty of fodder for research. Okay, so I'm going to unfortunately need to go around the room uh, um, in, a, in a distinct order to move through this quickly. And I am going to only pick on residents and no medical students, okay, so you guys are lucky. And no fellows, thank God. Um, so I'm going to start on this side of the room with uh, Dr. Tuhi. And this one is kind of a tough case because it's a little bit... It's a little bit um, zoomed in on something, and I'm going to help you. Well, first of all, what do you what do you see? Like, what do you what do you think is going on here? How can you tell? The curve at the top of the screen. That's how she knows it's a transvaginal. I say endovaginal. You could say either word. Doesn't matter. Yeah, I agree. I don't see a lot of other structures either. This actually turns out to be the uterus right here. This is the it's off it's off we're off the we're off axis or not looking directly at the uterus right now. We're we're really focused off in the adnexa. And that's the that's the advantage one has when they're doing the scan themselves is that they look down at their hand at the wand and they see it pointing all the way over to the side where they see the baby. Right? And so this must be Yeah, it's an ectopic. It's a good sized this is a good sized ectopic. This one's live. Okay. Oh, like a very, very high percentage are in the tube. Um, if it's in the ovary, it can be a devastating um, when they rupture. Uh, if it's in the cornua of the uterus, those are also very de uh, devastating. Those are the ones that really kill the patients. Where's the cornua? What does that mean? The cornua or the horn of the uterus is right over here. And if you saw an ectopic growing out here, that is like you know, a five alarm fire, like get OB right away, because when those rupture, they take out big blood vessels. Luckily, this one's just adjacent to it. 90 something percent are going to be in the tube. How large can a copy, like a live get? Sure. Uh huh. Um, <laughs> you can have uh, all the way, if it's in the intra abdominal, uh -huh, you can have a pregnancy grow to term. And um, yeah, it's, it's well documented. Hundreds of cases. Are documented. There's probably been a lot more than that, though, over the over the How centuries. Well, uh, the patient go, goes to the. Um, they what happens is they, they have failure to progress in labor, and their abdomen is so big, <laughs> and then they go for a C-section, and then they find out where the baby really is. Is, is that how they're basically well, they come I'm out? Well, thinking an autopsy because once they grow that big, the sense is attached to everything. Yeah. Like, yeah. A little bit And like any other good parasite, kills its host. Yes? I, I have actually spoken to an obstetrician who delivered one, to kind of the way you were describing it. Um, an intra-abdominal pregnancy, and the patient did a 
Good game. Okay, Pam, your turn. Okay. Mm hmm. So this is this is the amniotic sac right here. In the last lecture I gave you guys, I talked about the the um, the the gestational sac that just keeps you know it grows and then eventually you get um, the the yolk sac. You know that what that's what obliterates and the and the uh, the gestational sac grows into the amniotic sac and that's what we're seeing right now is just the amnion all the way around here like this. So that's normal actually to see that. But focus on this guy right here. And unfortunately, we don't see any hash marks over here. But the question is, is this crown rumbling? Do you think that's more than 5 millimeters? Unfortunately, the hash marks are not on the side of the screen there. But the answer is yes, it's like 2 centimeters. And so by the time it's 5 millimeters, we should expect to see a cardiac activity, which we do not see here. And so therefore, the diagnosis is? Yeah, I, 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 I use a slightly different term. I call it abnormal intrauterine pregnancy. You could say intrauterine field demise. You could say you know, there's all these different terms. Um, but from an ultrasound perspective, this pregnancy is abnormal. And once I make that diagnosis, 100% are going to be miscarriages. Yeah, to see all this fluid in here, absolutely. Yeah, yeah you know, I don't know. Maybe that's... That's supposed to grow all the way out to the edge here. It's not. Maybe it's pulled away. Maybe there's a second pregnancy over here that they're not fanning all the way through, which I don't. Maybe that's what that is. There could be a, a, a twin gestation going on in this. I'm not really sure to, until I'm fanning all the way through. Maybe it's all starting, starting to separate. And, and yeah, maybe this whole thing is peeling away. So if I were to see that, though, then I would be concerned. I, the only. No, nah, this, this wouldn't bother me too much over here if I saw that. I would tell the patient, the baby has a heartbeat, you're in the first trimester, this is probably 10 weeks or 9 weeks right here, uh, there's nothing anybody can do to save the pregnancy, you should probably take it easy, nothing you did is causing this pregnancy to potentially abort. Um, vaginal bleeding in pregnancy we see six times a day in our emergency department. We send them all home, there's nothing to do about it, there's no reason to call anybody, it's not like a, a OBGYN is going to come down and stick something in there to stop an impending miscarriage. There's nothing to do at that stage. All right. Uh, okay, Shahina. Shahina. Did I say it wrong? <laughs> no, no, we just like okay. To oh, okay. Over here. Got it. Okay. Yes, I agree. So now we do see centimeter hash marks here. So it is two centimeters, maybe? Yeah. I can't really tell if there's I know. I wish this video clip, I wish I had it to where it would just stop squirreling around and just stay staring at the fetus where the heart is likely located. 
and see a heartbeat or not. So what I do in these situations is, and there's no heartbeat here, by the way, okay. is before I tell the patient you're going to have a miscarriage, I definitely spend a couple of extra minutes, like, fanning very slowly through the fetus, sagittal, coronal, up and down, very slow, just to make sure I didn't, like, mistake and say they're having miscarriage when they're not. So, um, so that's, there's no heartbeat here. So the diagnosis is, okay, abnormal IUP. Do you guys see anything else going on here? What's this? Is this what you're looking at over here, this? Yeah, what is all that? Yeah, what do we call, what, what do we call it? That's exactly right. That's, that's the answer. Subchorionic hemorrhage. I mean, it's an abnormal intrauterine pregnancy with a subchorionic hemorrhage. And so, you know, it's kind of like we said, you know, sort of peeling away, going to be a miscarriage here pretty soon. But some subchorionic hemorrhages are inconsequential and go on to normal pregnancies, right? Exactly. So when, whenever I see them and a patient says, what does that mean? I say, nobody knows. There's no higher risk one way or the other. It's like having vaginal spotting during the first trimester of pregnancy. It doesn't mean anything. No, there's nothing for them to do. There's a live intrauterine pregnancy. The only time I call OB on the abnormal intrauterine pregnancy, if there's no heartbeat, is if the os is open, tissue's protruding, or the patient's just having all kinds of drama and, and uh, pain, and they just can't, they can't deal, I'll call OB because they may want to do something. But the patient's like, oh, okay, so I'm going to miscarriage? Yep, os is closed, vital signs are stable. I tell the patient they're going to have miscarriage, and I don't call OB. Uh, Yalds. <laughs> That's good. That's good. Of this monitor, of the screen, yes, correct. Yalda, by the way, you've been doing a ton of ultrasounds, and they're great quality. Thank you. I've just noticed the last couple of QAs. I'm like. I even said to myself, dang, y'all just doing a lot of ultrasounds. Dang in a good way, like, like hot dang, not dang damn it. <laughs> That's the only downside, but, um, <laughs> but at least they're quality ultrasounds. Nothing, nothing worse than extending QA with just a bunch of muck, you know? So what do you think is going on here, y'all? Now that I've buttered you up with the... Uh, yeah, so it looks like, I mean, that looks like a gestational sign outside. Yeah, it's got a but thick I ring. The question is, is it five millimeters in diameter, which it looks like it is. These are one centimeter hash marks. So it's five millimeters in diameter. Boy, it's so hard to tell if there's a yolk sac or fetal pole in there. Uh, I don't know. Maybe there's a little fetal pole right here. I mean, technically speaking, what's this called when we see this, though? Yeah, normally I would never put Doppler on a fetus, right? But, but for an ectopic pregnancy, if you put power flow, if it's an actively growing ectopic, so one way to get the OBGYN's ears you know, spidey sense going is to say, you know, I went ahead and put flow on this, on this ectopic and there's a big ring of fire around it, meaning that there's a lot of hyperemia around this ectopic pregnancy, which means it's an actively, like, growing ectopic that's got a big blood supply that when it ruptures, it takes out all those big blood vessels right there, okay? And so that, that to me is a more of a concerning thing. We call that sign the ring of fire. And so, empty uterus. It's in the tube. This is the uterus. I think the uterus is ending right here. Okay. See, this is sort of outside. This is the uterus. I have a cornua coming up towards the end, but...
Yeah, it looked like it was, yeah. They found it. How about this? Uh, who's next? Da, 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 da. Randy. The Wu Tang. Yeah. <coughs> yeah, exactly. So, turns out you don't need to put the endovag probe in when the when the baby's that big. Okay, <laughs> so I applaud the aggressiveness. However, once you know, so it begs the question: How big does the baby need to be in order to switch over to transabdominal? Okay. I think that if the patient gives you a story around eight weeks or higher, definitely transabdominal. Six weeks or less, start on endovag. If it's between six and seven weeks, it doesn't hurt to plop the transabdominal probe on there. You may see something. Um, but I maintain a low threshold to go endovag. But this one right here, that's the skull. There's like the thalami over there. I mean, that's, this is like, didn't need to go endovag on that patient. So six to eight weeks, you do the transabdominal. You see an intrauterine pregnancy with a fetal heart motion. You're done. Done. You don't need to do the transabdominal. Correct. Correct. Now, there's an exception to that before we get to this next clip. What's the one exception, the one time I start to worry, even in a patient where I've got an intrauterine pregnancy? Clomid. Clomid, right. I had a patient the other day. We don't get that many UCI, okay? We get the opposite. We get people going, well, I'm pregnant again. I'm 23. This is my seventh pregnancy. You know, it's the opposite problem at UCI, right? But at other places, you may work. You may get this 42-year-old woman who comes in G0 or maybe G10P0, uh, who's on Clomid, who's had HCG inject, you know, the, uh, the whole bit, you know, and, uh, and, and you see an intrauterine pregnancy, boy, is your job not done. It couldn't be further than done. Because the risk of heterotopic pregnancy in those um, patients, those fertility patients, is very high, like 1 in 100. So, 10 cuidado. How about this one? Who's next? Malosh. <coughs> So I see a ring of fire in there. Let's see. Yeah. yeah Another ectopic with Don't a ring know. of fire. <laughs> Perfect. And uh, that's the idea. I don't really see, you know, the problem is I've got it all zoomed in right now, so you don't see where the uterus is. The uterus is off axis. It's not even seen here. Um, this looks like, you know, is this a cystic structure, like a corpus luteal cyst, or is this free fluid? Hard to tell just by looking at this. Free fluid should be more wedged out. Cystic structures on the ovaries tend to be more capsulated looking, more rounded borders. If it's got more sharp angles, it's usually free fluid. Again, I'd want to fan all the way through this. What vessel is this down here? Iliac. Good, iliac. Exactly right. Exactly. Good. So I just don't see the uterus anywhere, but that's okay because we're off in the adnexus staring at this ectopic. You left one uh, thing off of there. Who's with me? Tyler, was it you the other night we had this? We had an empty uterus, free fluid, and positive pregnancy test, and a mass in the adnexa. So it didn't even, it wasn't an ectopic, it didn't look, didn't, it didn't have the criteria for an ectopic. It had like a, so it wasn't a gestational sac of five millimeters with the yolk sac or fetal pole in it. It was just a solid structure in the adnexa. Okay? So in that case, when you've got free fluid, empty uterus, and a mass, and a positive pregnancy test, regardless of the value of the beta, that's an ectopic 97% of the time, according to Jim Mateer. Okay. Who is next? Art? The 
Arturo. Arturo. Yeah. Good stripe right in the middle. Yep. Okay. Patient's not even pregnant. What's this up here? That's the bladder. That's the bladder. Yep. In a sagittal view, the bladder sits right here. The, the only other thing, so this is just a normal sagittal sweep. But the thing I want to point out to you guys, though, is that the bladder is not empty, which is annoying. Um, but that uh, the uterus is, is it retroverted or antiverted? How would I know? The, it, the, its relationship to the bladder. So it's antiverted in this situation right here, which is about 85% of the time you'll see these antiverted uteruses. It's wrapping itself just posterior to the bladder. Okay? It's antiverted. So it's going anteriorly. If it was retroverted, you see the uterus going back this way. The fundus is right here, right? Instead of the fundus being on this side of the screen, the fundus would be over here on this side of the screen. We have one of those coming up. So Arturo... No, it does not matter other than anatomy. When I see, when, in QA, when I see a retroverted uterus, I worry that the probe could be upside down. And for me, it's, a, it's an issue of technique. Do I need to remind that person about which way the indicator goes? And so I'm looking for the bladder the whole time. And if the bladder's on the correct side of the screen, then I know that their, their technique was perfect. Okay. Arturo, continue with you. Same patient. Different plane. What plane is this? coronal plane. Very good. So, again, pretty full bladder, unfortunately, which you want to have an empty bladder when you do an vaginal ultrasound. A, it's more comfortable. B, usually the images aren't this good because we get so much noise from the bladder, but this is the endometrial stripe here, and you see in a coronal plane, which another word for that is transverse, we can see it stretching out here. There's, an, there's something else over here that everybody's eye picks up, I noticed. That thing right there, see that? What was that? Bowel loop, exactly. And it looks like that. The bowel loop will look like that all, oh, not what I wanted to do, shoot. Wah, wah, wah. Sorry, guys. Um, got a little trigger happy here with the... Uh, <laughs> so, so the bowel loops look like that all over the body. They look like they have a hypoechoic um, outer margin to them. And it looks like that from the esophagus all the way down to the rectum, okay? And so we can see that on ultrasound as that hypoechoic outer wall and with the hyperechoic uh, center to it, which is right there. That's a loop of bowel right there. So the bladder, to me, looks like, it's not obviously bilateral, but it's on both sides of the screen. So how would you so see? See, it's going to connect up right there at the very last second. It connects up. So it's not a septated bladder. Very, 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 very rare, if ever. I've never seen one, actually. Um, you just fan through it. And then if you pull the probe out a little bit, you'll see the bladder much easier on ultrasound. And if you put the probe back in a little bit, the bladder goes away. Okay, next one. Who are we? Uh, T. Ray. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> Mr. Whiskers. Mr. No badge. Yeah, a little flicker right there. I think I saw it. So, so this is the amnion, that little circle right there that's growing. And what's that other circle there that passes by? What's that called? Which, which one? The big one? Or 
the little one, that one. Yolk. That's the yolk sac, right? And that, just as a side note, that's the earliest identifiable structure that this is an intrauterine pregnancy. That's the thing you see it right at about five and a half weeks. You can see the yolk sac. Then at six weeks, you'll see that fetal pole, six and a half cardiac activity. So it's just but you also could see that yolk sac outside the uterus. If you saw that yolk sac hanging outside the uterus, within a gestational sac that measures five millimeters, you're thinking ectopic pregnancy. That's correct. Okay. <coughs> Save that one for Dina. No, I'm just kidding. No. Yeah, one of our machines does a 3D image, and one of these, one of the day I was just fanning through. I saw a cool gestational sac with the yolk sac in it, and I was just, <laughs> I was just messing around with the machine there, because yeah, or Toshiba. It's kind of locked away. It's uh, it's the big, a, the big mama, yeah, big mama. She does a lot of 3D, so you fan through it and you capture it, and then it kind of has that, I don't know, yeah, just an intrauterine pregnancy, um, demonstrating something, just demonstrating the yolk sac, just for fun. I didn't see the fetal pole there. But remember, you don't need the fetal pole for it to be an IUP. All you need is the yolk sac. Okay, this one's interesting. Who's uh, Wes? Oh, yeah. Wes has the humdinger. So this might be the, uh, the hornular ectopic. You can kind of see. That's right. There's the endometrial stripe, and they call it the pointing line sign of cornuate. See how it points, that line, it points down towards this very thin uterine mantle. So right at the edge of the uterus is where this pregnancy embeds itself, right? The, also called it interstitial pregnancy. It's where the uh, fallopian tube comes into the uterus, right there at the horn, the cornua, or the interstitium, and that's why it's called interstitial. But look at all these big blood vessels all around it here. They can get ruptured when it, when it ruptures. And so um, this one I... It's not one of ours. I got this from Mike Lambert. All right, good job. Let's go back over to the good Dr. Tuhi. I get this page from the, from the OBGYN service when they're in the OR with this patient. Dear Dr. Fox, we're making wine in the OR. What do you think they meant by that? That's right, grape-like clusters. So that's what this is, the molar pregnancy. Yeah. How can you tell that Well, your midline, the probe's midline. I know, you, and, and this, is, this is zoomed into 5.1. There's nothing, obviously, there that tells me that's uterus. Not really. I mean, it's a little bit of the bladder off to the side comes in. They're just kind of fanning through. We see some more bladder over there. They're sort of, sort of midline. They, they, can need, they need more depth, right, because uterus is it's hanging off the bottom of this sector, and so they need to increase their depth down to 6 or 7 in order to to make some better sense out of that. But you're right, it's a multiple pregnancy. And uh, Shannon, I'm going to stay on this topic for, with you for a little bit longer before I move the next resident. This is another example, an older version I have here of a molar pregnancy. See those grape-like clusters there, endovag. And then I have a transabdominal version on this one as well. You can see here using that transabdominal large footprint curve transducer, that's actually the uterus there. And it's the same pattern over and over again as these 
clusters of cystic structures. You, first, you set a bunch of cystic structures, which turns out those are all uh, blood vessels there. All right. Pam? By the way, how's that phantom going in there? Oh, it's really cool. Is it helping? Did it help? Did you learn anything from that? Okay, okay. And uh, it's a $6,000 phantom. Was it worth the money? Okay, good. Excellent. See, now you guys are interested. Now you know how expensive the phantom is. Now you don't want to all run in there. I think so, right, Mark? You know, actually, I don't think so. I think that they know about them, and they, they obviously need a, um, to be taken out, but I think they have to elect it with the next day or something. Okay. They're, they, they're not bleeding right when you see them. The ones I've seen, three or four of them over the many years, have been 20 weeks-ish along, or when they're 20 weeks-ish size, they're, by dates, they're much too big. And they've been obvious on diagnosis. I remember looking at two of them, I think, with I think it depends. Pam, what do you think about this one? <laughs> yeah, a couple of anechoic structures, I agree, right over here. What organ does this look like? We see loops of bowel floating in free fluid. Ovaries here. So it's just a couple of ovarian cysts. That's all this is. Nothing to write home about. Maybe one ruptured because when we get off to, this, to the edge of this, we can see like a little loop of bowel right, th right there. See these loops of bowel? They're just floating in this free fluid, sharp angles and wedges. That's free fluid. So probably there was another cyst there somewhere that ruptured. And, and this is where you're, you know, sort of clinically trying to decide what to do. You've got some free fluid. You've got an ovarian cyst still on there. Is the patient feeling better? Are they having ovarian torsion? Very, you know, clinical dependency going on here. If, uh, you know, if you can lean one way or the other, it can save you a consult or not, or an ovary or not. So you got to be careful there. Uh, not typically, no. I don't get a sense of that history. Yeah, very rarely has been my experience that it would be a, enough bleeding from an ovarian cyst to cause hemodynamic compromise and confuse it with a ruptured ectopic. Rarely possibly. Most of them, they just bleed a little bit and stop. Now, you can have a very large hemorrhagic cyst that already kind of bled into itself that ruptures, and then you get a lot of chemical peritonitis from all that ruptured blood. And I've, I've had a patient go to the OR for a ruptured hemorrhagic ovarian cyst that bled down to hemoglobin 7. So. I had one two days ago, too. It was actively bleeding. Not pregnant ovarian cyst? Not pregnant, yeah. We get a, so much gyne stuff here at UCI. It's amazing. Oh, okay. 
Yeah. And not tell the other seven residents that weren't here about it. Earmuffs, yeah. Hmm. Uh, reverberation, which is what you saw, and which what we see on this one as well, the top of the screen that we saw around that ovarian cyst, and we see it over here, is that does that mean it's all the same consistency that it's reverberating through? And I'm going to say, in these two situations, it just happened to be, it reverberated down to that level and stopped. Okay. So I don't necessarily think because because we can see reverberation artifact that traverses different tissue types all the time. Like if you take a needle and stick it in underneath, into a soft tissue underneath the skin, you'll see reverb going all the way to the bottom of the screen, like a nail or a metallic form body. Um, basically a comet tail artifact is a form of reverberation artifact, so with lung sliding you'll see those comet tails. With um, you know, beelines on, with pulmonary edema, you'll see those reverbs go all the way to the bottom of the screen and it traverses through multiple different tissue types. And so, so I don't think so. I like the way you think, Pam Swan. All right, who's next? Y'alls? Yeah. So this one turns abdominal. I see the bladder. And then I see the uterus right behind it. You see the, the cervix. And then there's like a sac next to the fundus of the uterus. But I don't know if it's inside or, or right outside. <coughs> Maybe it is inside, but it's empty. To me, it looks like it's adjacent to the uterus. It's got some what appears to be ovarian tissue right here. So I, this is exactly right. So I like this because it demonstrates the sagittal anatomy very well. It's a transabdominal probe, nice big footprint like C60. We see the triangular shaped bladder here and we can see the vaginal stripe here terminates at the cervix and then we see the uterus going this way. This is the anterior cul-de-sac along here. The anterior cul-de-sac recalls the vesico-uterine pouch and then we see the kind of the posterior cul-de-sac is back here, or pouch of Douglas or rectouterine pouch. And then there's a cystic structure. This turns out to be an ovarian cyst. And ovarian cysts can, um, as we know, the, the uterus can kind of twist off to one side or the other. In this case, the uterus twists it off to the side that the cyst is on. And that's why it looks like it's posterior to the uterus, which in some ways it is, but it's also off to the side. And then we can see it over there, sort of off to the, to the, to the right side of that uterus a little bit. And so, and the ovaries become untethered, too, especially after, in multiparous women, the ovaries aren't necessarily sitting where they usually are, right up there out towards the fundus. They, they can kind of rotate around like that on you. And so, um, that's why we can see the um, accommodation of factors make it look like the anatomies in, the, you know, in different places, with the uterus twisting off to one side and with an ovary uh, moving. Now, when I see the vaginal stripe line up, um, vaginas are generally down the center of the body. Those don't really shift one side or the other, as we know. So that's a good place to think about midline being. The vaginal stripe is, that's midline, right? So that's uh, a midships. But, um, but, when, but the ovaries can be, can be tethered. And I think that's really what we're seeing here is that the ovary kind of moved behind the ears. Because now, the more I think about it, I see the vaginal stripe there on the screen. We're midline then. Although they could have taken the transducer and rotated it slightly out of plane, too. So that's just an ovarian cyst. Okay, uh, who's next? Randy? Yeah. Uh, so this looks uh, transvaginal probe. I see the stripe. Looks, is this maybe thickened? It's prominent, isn't it? It catches your eye. Anybody else want to help them? Very good, that's an IUD. 
I'll show you a couple more here, Randy. This transabdominal one, using the, the small footprint probe. You'd want to use a C60 if you're going transabdominal the pelvis. Um, but yeah, we can see this, um, this, this basically foreign object sitting over here in the fundus of the uterus. Okay, another IUD. And then, um, and we've had this happen a number of times, this next situation, which is where, what do we see here? Whoopsies. <laughs> That's right, an IUD and an IUP. There's the IUD. <laughs> yeah. I would call, probably make a phone call about that one. All right. And uh, Maloche. Which so probe? I think it's a transabdominal probe. Correct. That's all, just a normal sagittal sweep. And, uh, and I'm just going to stay with you here, Malosh, for this next one here because it's kind of a similar thing, except instead of being sagittal, now we're transverse. transverse, exactly right. And in a full bladder, notice how the bladder is, on, you know, is up there on top of the uterus. Now, if your bladder was not full and if it was empty, you would see the uterus wrap itself on top of an empty bladder that's bowing down. And in a sagittal view, that's pretty easy to conceptualize, but in a transverse view, it looks weird because you'll see from the top of the screen, you'll see uterus, bladder, and then more uterus, like that, because it's wrapping itself all the way around an empty-ish bladder. So another reason why I think it's important to try to look at these transabdominal views with a nice full bladder. You don't have to. You certainly don't have to, but I think it's helpful with, with some of the anatomy, especially when you're getting started, to see a nice full bladder. For example, this one right here is another sagittal view uh, transabdominally, but in this case, the bladder is empty. And so you can see the vaginal stripe here, cervix is down here, and look how like anteroflexed this uterus is. It's not just anteroverted, it's like flexing all the way back. It's like doing a 180 on, on the vaginal stripe. You see the vaginal stripe is here, and the uterus goes all the way back here. The bladder here is pretty empty, okay? And when that bladder is empty like that, it's just, it makes some of the anatomy sort of funny, transabdominally. That's all. Okay. Uh, where are we? Art? Yep. Now we're now it's, uh, coronal, good, uh-huh. Fanning through that uterus, do we see anything in there? So. This is just an empty uterus. So I'll have to throw these in there too because we see a lot of pathology in these, in these clips. And so this is what organ here? Bladder. bladder, yeah. So here's a bladder looking at the sagittal view. This is an antiverted uterus, like you said. Fundus is wrapping itself towards the bladder. And then we go into, um, this is the cervix over here a second ago. Now we go to a coronal view. And now the uterus is in a shorter axis. And we kind of fan through that. We see that the horn um, kind of stretch out from itself. And this is the bladder over here. And we see another part of the bladder over here. Good. All right. How about this next one here? Got a lot more to do. About halfway done. Who's next? T. Ray. Endovag. 
Mm, I think the bladder is empty. It's right here. Oh, my bad. Yeah. So we're gonna start over. Here's the. So what organ is this? Like you said. Good. Yeah. So this is the bladder. It's empty. This is actually what then? That's right. Yeah. So then, so yeah, we we fan through this uterus a, a couple of times. We don't see anything in there. Um, and then we see this thing over here. See that? Boom. There's the money shot right there. We see uterus and this structure over here adjacent to it. Then we hone in on that adjacent structure where we see a yolk sac. This gestational sac is at least five millimeters. This is probably my best ectopic pregnancy I think I have in all my clips. So they actually had a heartbeat too as a live ectopic. That's a lot of fun. All right. How about this one? Dean's. Correct. Uh huh. Yeah, it's hard to tell because we're so zoomed in, but it's in the uterus. The next question is: Correct, is there cardiac activity or not? And we fanned and fanned and fanned and fanned and fanned and looked through this thing. We didn't see any cardiac activity. So what's the diagnosis? That's right. Good job. Okay. Wes is next. Yeah, they're kind of going back between now it looks sagittal, now it looks yeah. coronal, yeah. Um, regardless, it looks like you have a uh, greater than a centimeter sac with uh, no fetal hole, so in abnormal IMP. Very good. Now, you said that very quickly. This is a confusing one for some people, so I'm going to walk through it. Um, some people, maybe. <laughs> now, what happens is that gestational sac grows and grows and grows and grows, and if it doesn't grow a yolk sac or fetal pole, um, once it gets to 10 centimeters, it's still intrauterine pregnancy, actually. You can have an empty sac as long as it gets up to 10 millimeters or 1 centimeter. Then you have an intrauterine pregnancy, but it's going to be a miscarriage. When there's no sac or fetal pole, sometimes people have another term for this. They call this a blighted ovum. That's right. Okay. Rant, uh, Shan Shannon, right? Back to Shannon? Yeah. Tuhi. Good. Very good. Okay. Who's next? Is Pam still here? Yeah. I would call that live. Yeah, I think I see the flicker there too. It's you know it's kind of plus minus if there's a flicker, but you can easily hone it down, look at it a little bit closer. And who's next? Did Shaheen's make it back yet? Okay. So, Randy. Yeah, transvaginal. 
Perfectly round, yeah. So the bladder is up here, right? That's bladder. This is the, to me this looks like uterus coming down here. This is, real, this is our first ultrasound machines, that, that BK machine that we no longer use. So it's a little hard to make out these images. But describe that perfectly round structure because that's really what I'm focused on. I would say, yeah, hypococke or even isococke material. Not an anacoke is jet black. The bladder has anacoke material in it. This is more like hypoechoic material. That's the same hue, so it's isocoic. Uh, I don't see any fetal poles. Um, Patient has a, a beta of zero, of less than one, whatever that means. Does be a cyst? Yeah, what kind of cyst? Okay, ovarian cyst. Another way to describe this, being a little more specific with regards to the echogenicity of it. Let's play, what am I thinking? That's very good, that's right, hemorrhagic ovarian cyst, because it has that isoechoic material in it. That's what a big hemorrhagic ovarian cyst will look like. Perfectly round with a bunch of congealed blood. Yeah, you'd have to, 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 to be good enough with your ultrasound to, to distinguish that structure as being separate than the uterus. Now, some fibroids can grow off the edge of the uterus. Um, but that's, yeah, that's the hard part. To me, it looked more sort of isochoic with itself, and it looked very round. I don't know. And maybe I could hallucinate some parts of the ovary on the edges of it. Okay, who is next? Okay. Um, so it's endovag, I see a gestational sac with a baby in it, but I don't see it. It's going pretty fast. I can't, I don't know if there's a cardiac activity. Yeah, I didn't see any cardiac activity. It's, it's going too fast. Sac, is that a second sac there? Is it a, a twin gestation? Um, this is the uterus here, bladder seen up here. This structure here is adjacent to the uterus, actually. Well, that's the question. Is it a heterotopic pregnancy or what's more common in a patient who doesn't take fertility medication than a heterotopic pregnancy when you see a cystic structure in the adnexa? It's, it's got a special name. That's right, the corpus luteal cyst. So that's a corpus luteal cyst of pregnancy. We see that all the time. It causes lateralizing symptoms. Patient comes to the emergency department. We do an ultrasound. We see a cyst over there, and we go, okay, are you taking fertility medications? No. Go home. Yes. Call OB. <laughs> That's simple, okay? Who's next? Arturo. Okay. Yeah, it looks like there's a little something next to it there. So if this patient's pregnant, let's try to put this all together. What do we see here? Do we see... Do not see a so we see an empty uterus plus... We saw some free fluid back here posteriorly in the pouch of Douglas, and then we see this sort of mass structure adjacent to the uterus. Um, wondering what that is in the setting of a positive pregnancy test. In this case, in this in this case, you're seeing right here empty uterus, free fluid, and a mass in the adnex and a positive pregnancy test. That's what Dr. Lenos was talking about. That's that 
97% chance this is an ectopic pregnancy. So, so bam. Okay, this one's T Ray. Uh huh. Good. This is just nothing, just a couple normal looking ovaries. Just to show you that they, they ride right on that iliac axis. You call it chocolate chip looking ovary, absolutely. And so that's just normal looking ovaries there. All right. What about this one? Dean's? Correct. That's, that's where babies come from. <laughs> I like that. So, so what's the problem? This is a technique question. It's, it looks overgained. Kind of zoomed in. What structure is this? And this is the gestational sac that's grown inside the uterus, but we can't see anything in there because this is artifact from the full bladder. So this is to drive home the point that if you have a full bladder with endovaginal ultrasound, it's going to be poor quality, and you need to have the patient empty their bladder. So you always hear me say that, hey, we're, going to, we're ready for you in bed 19 to do endovaginal ultrasound, and I go, is the bladder empty? That's why. Nah, there's nothing you could... You could push the probe in a little further sometimes and push down from the outside. That can help a little bit, but really... Nope. The image is uninterpretable because of the full bladder in the setting of endovaginal ultrasound. Uh, no. <laughs> it's not, that's not the problem. We're actually transabdominal. We're actually transabdominal. Okay. So, <laughs> so what, what organ is this right here? Trying to maintain my composure in the setting of lots of funny jokes. What organ is this right here? That's the bladder. Very good. Is this bladder empty or full? Pretty empty. And so this is the uterus. uterus wrapping itself around an empty bladder. And there's some more uterus, maybe vaginal-ish stuff down here. And so that's the problem with an empty bladder, especially transabdominally, in a transverse plane, things look confusing. Which is why, even though you don't need to have a full bladder, I think it helps to have a full bladder when you're getting started doing pelvic ultrasound because it makes the anatomy less confusing. See how confusing? When I first saw this, I'm like, what are we looking at here? I mean, are these like ovaries out here? You know, like it's really confusing. This is the uterus fundus up here. It wrapped around the bladder, which was empty, which is, we can see maybe a little bit more, you know, sort of uterus or vagina down here. It's just wrapping itself sort of in the back of the wall and then coming back out at the screen at us in a cross-sectional kind of thing. Okay. Um, who we uh who Tuhi? Are we back to Tuhi? Shana Tuhi. Boom. Love it. Very good. Endovaginal scan. Excellent. Okay. Now, this is a still image somebody sent me. Well, it was sent around a listserv. I'm on these geeky ultrasound listservs. And this is the image was sent around just as a that's right, that's right. I suppose the cool ultrasound listservs. Um, and it's, it's I, wish, I, I just wish BC was in here. 
Ovarian cyst resembles India. See this thing? I don't know. Yeah, maybe Africa, maybe Africa, okay. This was an ultrasound done. This was an ultrasound done in our department in, in the... Oh, Oh. <laughs> Looks like India. <laughs> okay, so this this is um who 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 are you talking to now? Pa is it Pamela? Okay. Tuhi is done. Now we're on to Pamela. Who well, tell me about this one? Yeah, top pregnancy. This was down done down in radiology with their nice Phillips machine. And you can see when they put color flow on this, they get a little ring of fire. They're zooming. This is the uterus over here. This is the Sagittal view. What type of uterus is this? Good. Retroverted. You see it's going the wrong direction. Um, and this is the ectopic growing posterior to it. And they put flow on it and they saw ring of fire. See, I don't, I'm not making this ring of fire stuff up. This is what they're doing down, down in radiology too. Okay, so. Um, but, you know, their machine's a little bit better than ours. It's got uh, ten times the cost and a little more horsepower. And they get some pretty images, that's for sure. Um, this is um, uh, an ultrasound I did during an ultrasound course. Um, where I was using a, a different uh, machine. This was, a, of course, I was doing it ASAP, and this was my model. So this is an endovaginal ultrasound. I was teaching on my model all day, and I said, you know, you've got really cool-looking what? Ovaries. Ovaries, good. Don't say tonsils. Ovaries. And so <laughs> it looks a little bit like an inflamed tonsil, too. But so that's, that's what we're seeing here. We're seeing ovaries. And what's interesting about why did I measure everything? Why, was I, why did I grab this clip to show you guys today? What is of interest here? Yeah, if you look at the sizes, though, look at that, length 2.84, I mean, they're not large. I've zoomed in on them, so it's not, it's not for torsion. I didn't happen to have a patient, uh, a model who was bilaterally torsing that day. But what's, the, by the way, that's her, this is, um, this is her right ovary, this is her left ovary, and the corresponding clips down below. So she has bilateral, yeah, what would you call that with, when you see, I mean, how many cysts are on here? There we go, polycystic ovaries, good. Okay. Uh, she did not know. It was normal. No idea what that means, but it sounds funny. <laughs> Trumping me on the joke, which I don't even know. I'm not even in in on. Oh, was she here suit? Oh, I get it. I get you. I get you. I get you. Yeah. This is the same patient. This is her uterus. She just has kind of an interesting little bicornateness to her uterus. You see that? It's a coronal view there. So she's a little bit of a. She's a little bit bicornate, like. There's all different, there's a whole spectrum of bicornateness. You can have all the way up to uterine didelphus, but very common and doesn't seem to hurt the fertility at all. That's sagittal view of the same woman. And uh, what's interesting about that uterus, it is what? Retroverted. Very good. You guys are getting the hang of this. Very good. Okay. Correct. Because all the other, notice that probably 90% of the uterus. The uteri we've seen have been going this way, correct? 
This is a weird one because it's aiming in the wrong direction. So that should strike you as, oops, am I, is my probe upside down or is this an actual retroverted uterus? Okay, we're almost done here, guys. A few more slides. And we are on to Shaheen's. Which probe, transabdominal or endovag? Very good. So oh, you have a cool case. Correct. That would be the ovary. Uterus is over here. Ovaries over here. Very good. When we go into the transverse plane or coronal plane, we can see the interesting finding. It's hard to. That's right. So there's a little thing right there. This is not. Gosh, this is really hard to look look at, but. But this is the gestational sac that's inside the uterus, and this is the gestational sac that's outside the uterus with a little, it's got a little fetal pole to it. So this is an actual heterotopic pregnancy in a woman that did not swarp and down. She did not take clomid. This is a 23-year-old female. So how do you know that's not an ovarian cyst? Second? Well, that was the question, and it looks just like an ovarian cyst. And a lot of people probably would have stopped here, and it would have been a reasonable thing to do in a person who doesn't take clomid. It's uh, just that that thing was so uh, thick. If you look around it, it's got a very, it's a very thick capsule to it, which is more consistent with. Uh, I mean, look how thick. Look at the, the thickness of that of that capsule around there, and that's more consistent with a gestational sac. Um, and so I, I called OB. They wanted a formal, got a formal, and they acted on this, and it was a heterotopic pregnancy in a patient who was not on fertility medication. Uh, over here, yes, uh, this is transabdominal. That's what else makes this interesting. To see a heterotopic transabdominally is tough to do. And so the bladder, normally I would look for the bladder up here, but you're right, it's way the hell down here, which means we are actually going transabdominal in this case. This is fat and like muscle. This is, uh, now, we're, now we're transverse. Now we're in a transverse plane because I just saw the two lines side, up, side, uh, lines side to side. See, now we're going to go transverse. That's part of the bladder. It's just a lot of artifact in it initially. See all the artifacts on the top of the bladder here? And we're trying to shoot through all this business here to get this. So this is, this is turning the probe from sagittal to the Correct. They're rotating the transducer. So the bladder moves from the right of the screen to the top of the screen. So that's Correct. That's what... You should. You should. I like that. Yep, that's one way to, to clinically, sonographically try to distinguish the two. And I think that happened down in radiology. So if you put a ring, if you put color flow Doppler on something that is not hyperemic, you just see nothing. Correct. Unless the patient moves and then see you see some flash artifact there. And this is where you need to get better at understanding color. And, um, and knowing how to turn down the pulse repetition frequency, which means you're making the machine not send out so many pulses per second. And if it's not talking as much, it's listening more, which makes you a more sensitive person the more you listen. <laughs> and, so, and so turn down the pulse repetition frequency so it's not sending out so many pulses per second. And then the machine is going to be like, I'm sorry, tell me again? And then it's listening more. It's more sensitive. Does that make sense? It's a little bit dramatic the way I'm doing it, and I agree. I'm 
sort of silly to do it that way, but I think that that helps me. That helped when someone told me that way. Sid Edelman told it to me that way, and I liked that explanation. You want to be putting color on like normal IEPs. No, you do not. That's right. I need to move along here, so I'm going to move uh, quickly through the next few slides. Um, but this was just a very large ovarian cyst that actually is probably better seen transabdominally. Once they get this big, it's kind of hard to tell. You put the probe, you see black stuff everywhere. D that, th that may be the case in which transabdominal just has better imaging. Okay? So why can't you use color doppler on a uh, You can't. Uh, there's, because whenever you activate the color, it causes increased uh, heat. The Doppler, whether it's color flow, power flow, or pulse wave Doppler, increases the thermal index. If you ever look closely at the side of the screen whenever you activate color in the sonocytes, it, it, the TI on grayscale is one number like, I don't know, 0.8. And then when you activate color, it goes to 1.2. That number gets bigger. It's because, I just threw those numbers out there. I don't know the exact numbers, but that's the amount of thermal index or heat that's going into the patient. And so there's this theoretical concern that's never been proven with any statistical demographic epidemiologic study that it's harmful, but there's a theoretical concern. And all of the ultrasound physicists... Based on what? That when you increase the heat, when you put color right on the fetus right. and you're increasing the heat, that you might cause a problem by heating up the baby right, but no, in a focused no way. No, not even. They, we believe we're worried that warming them up might be bad. Yes, that. But we don't know that warming them up might have no effect. True. It's this theoretical so concern. Like, somebody might say for like fertility, if you took one cell out of a, of a blastocyst that was eight cells, that somehow you get a permanent birth defect. Well, guess what? It's not true. Turns out it's not true. It's funny. You could take an entire cell out of a blastocyst. The right. thing turns out to be normal right. and. You know, a little bit of heat. The, the mother runs a fever, you know. In perspective, that, that, uh, we're adding a little heat, we're worried that's going to kill somebody, but, but taking a whole cell out of the animal doesn't seem to be much And you can have all the sex you want in the first trimester, and it doesn't cause any birth effects that we know of, so. And that increases the heat in the pelvis. Anyways, so. That's where I was going with it. I thought that's where you were trying to go, too, but you were being, Okay. So what's going on here? This is the transabdominal of the uterus. What, what is weird about this uterus, though? 58-year-old female comes in with vaginal bleeding. Yeah, big fibroids, full of I mean, you could say it's this whole, you know, it's got all these, it's probably multiple fibroids in this uterus. I, I, it was hard for me initially to see these fibroids, but over time, and we have so many patients with fibroids coming in, right, constantly, you, you, your eye starts to pick them up. Um, so we'll go through a couple of these here. This is, um, they had this hyperchoic kind of swirly focality to them. You see how this, it's hard to see, but this part is different than this mantle up here. This has this kind of very distinct, I mean, if I was going to measure the fibroid, I would start here and go all the way down to here with my caliper. Because to me, this whole swirly looking structure looks distinct from this more isocoke structure out here. Okay? And that's the only way I can, I can kind of describe it with words. It's very hard. It took me a while to see these. You have to kind of hallucinate them initially. But then they start jumping off the screen at you. Um, this is just another um, 
abnormal IUP. We see a very large gestational sac in a patient who's pregnant. We fan all the way through it. We don't see uh, any evidence there of um, a yolk sac or fetal pole. So that's just a big, large, abnormal IUP. And this patient here, what do you think is going on? They have a positive pregnancy test. And we see the structure sitting out here. It's got a thick ring around it. Here's the iliac vessel, so we know it's in the adnexa. Thick ring around it. It's got a little fetal pole in there. This is an ectopic pregnancy. Right in the beginning of the clip, we saw an empty uterus as well. And so when the clip, uh, see if it's going to restart here in a second, you'll see a big empty uterus there. So empty uterus plus this thing seen out in the adnexa tells us that this is an ectopic. Okay. Um, next one here is, I think that was the same patient, actually. Here's an empty uterus. That's looking like the same patient. Sorry about that. We'll go to the next one. Sometimes they start differently, and they fool me that they're different clips, but that really looks the same. Okay, here's one here. This is just, again, demonstrating nice, normal, sagittal, transabdominal anatomy. Here's the bladder over here. You're seeing the uterus stretch out this way. Very normal, sagittal anatomy. And we move on to the, the transverse view. It's the same thing. We're fanning through. We see a nice full bladder, and then we're going to fan through that uterus in a transverse plane. We can see that now it's only behind the bladder when the bladder is full. It doesn't come on top of the bladder like that other one did with the empty bladder. Okay, just regular transverse anatomy. Very nice. And then this next one here, um, we see an empty uterus that's retroverted right here. And then when we, when we fan off to the side of this uterus, the patient's pregnant, we see some free fluid seen right here just a little bit. It's a little subtle. There's that free fluid up there. And then we go, here's the uterus over here. It's empty. We're off to the left adnexa, uh, sorry, the right adnexa, and we see a ring of fire um, and confirms to us that this is an ectopic pregnancy with a ring of fire. You guys able to see that? Nice empty uterus, free fluid, and then we saw that thick ring of ectopic pregnancy over to the side there. There you go. Now this next image here is a patient who's basically got the uterus floating in free fluid. You see the uterus is right here? This is all free fluid in the posterior and anterior cul-de-sac. Just a ton of free fluid. Now we're trying to go sagittal on it right there. And this is just a tremendous amount of free fluid seen there. Uh, empty uterus, loops of bowel, floating in a lot of free fluid there. Um, I'm not even sure what that thing is right there. Maybe another loop of bowel. This is a patient with ascites. This patient has ascites. So it's like hanging on by its ligaments there. And then like, ah, and then over here. See in a sagittal view there, a lot of free fluid. And then just to reiterate the point that uh, this is a fetus here that they're putting um, Doppler on this fetus, and that's, um, that's um, a no-no. Um, and, um, and that's just recommendations, though, as we said, this is the T6.6. That's the thermal index right there on this particular product. And uh, as we mentioned, this, that's a recommendation by the Biofex Committee of AIUM. Hard to really have any good data to show that it's actually really bad, but there's a very real theoretical, I mean a serious theoretical concern there. And so why push the issue? There's no clinical reason to put Doppler on a fetus that I can think of, and so we just avoid it. Another example here, this is the uterus. It's got a very thickened uh, structure here. What do you think is going on here, this 56-year-old female with vaginal bleeding for two months? Fibroid. Very good, yes, fibroid right here, very excellent. Excellent. Just. Uh, 
uh, you cannot, that's a, good, that's a good point. So you have to kind of scare all these patients into following up to get endometrial biopsies. It's easy when their hemoglobin is in the sevens because we can just have OB come down, they do a bedside endometrial biopsy. But if the hemoglobin's stable, then um, I try to arrange good follow-up for, for these patients. We have a really you know, a good way to do that here in our community, so it's pretty easy for us. If you're working somewhere else um, and the patient's kind of non-compliant or maybe going to get lost to follow-up, I scare them into telling them that they have uterine cancer so that they, uh, they get a little more motivated to follow up. And I think that's kind of the job sometimes as the emergency physician is to try to, you know, uh, inspire our patients to, to not walk out of here thinking that everything's okay, it's just a fibroid, but they really need to follow stuff up. This is just a big ovarian dermoid right here. We can see it's got a lot of free fluid around it, and it's got this, you know, uh, solid component to it here that's got varying cystic structures on it and stuff. Interesting thing. So, as part of Sharice, uh, who is not here today, this is her research project. I'm going to ask you guys some questions, and then the lecture's done, okay? So I want you guys to put this in order. A, B, C, or D. I mean, put it in the order of A, B, C, and D, and E. Yeah, you're going to need a piece of paper. Or can you just, like, text, text Dina? <laughs> hey, this is Malosh. The answer is... B, yeah, B, C, D, E, A. In order of chronology, from earliest... So, yeah, so early IUP, live, abnormal, ectopic, ND IUP. So, in other words, which one of these, A, B, C, or D, is, is early, and then that will be your first letter. Your next letter will be live. Yes, you pair them up and order them. I sh maybe order is not the right... Yeah, because what's... I'm not good at making exam questions, clearly. This is a very con con confusing question. So, so your answer is going to look like this. It's going to look like you're going to see five letters that correspond to early IUP, live IUP. You're going to match them with these in that order. Thank you. Sorry. I'm a terrible quick <laughs> Blame Charisse. Hey, if she wants us to do this, she should be the one to write these questions, right? Okay. Waiting for Tyler. Really? I had to find a pen. Is that what you're gonna say when your patient's crashing? Uh -huh. Excuse me, I had to find a pen. Yeah. <coughs> I needed to log on to Quest. <laughs> I was just saying the other day how I rarely use a pen anymore at work. It's to sign blood forms and it's to sign like transfers. Yeah. Fifty one fifties, which are pretty rare, but that's about it. You know? 
So why do we teach kids how to write anymore? Such a waste of time. Next question, which of the following is false? A, ovarian cysts may or may not be symptomatic. B, pelvic free fluid may or may not be symptomatic. C, blood is very irritable to peritoneum. D, ultrasound can reliably rule out ovarian torsion. Or E, beta-HCG is not reliable in ectopic pregnancy. I didn't actually talk about E, but I'm always talking about E, so I figure I'll let you guys off the hook this time. Good? Moving on? Which of the following is actually true? These questions are harder to write, turns out, than the false ones. Uh, endovaginal ultrasound used a low-frequency transducer, resulting in superior equality. B, ovaries are posterior and lateral to the iliac vessels. Good, think about that one, don't you? C, external pressure applied to the lower abdomen will improve the ability to visualize ovaries using endovaginal ultrasound. D, the trigger on the ultrasound transducer is the indicator which should be pointed towards the ceiling in a sagittal view. That question should read. E, obese patients are more difficult to scan even when using the endovaginal transducer. You know, I don't think this is fair because I didn't really talk about any of these questions, actually. These kind of all came to me at the end, and uh, I realized these are important topics that I usually sort of talk about but didn't in this particular lecture. So um, give it your best shot. <laughs> and then as soon as you're done, turn your papers into me. I will grade them immediately. Everybody seems to be getting this question right so far, except for Randy. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> All right. Oh, you're still thinking? Okay, take your time. No pressure. No pressure. Okay, well, everybody got that one right, despite I didn't really teach about it, so that's good. You've heard me say it before, clearly. Anybody else? No, really, y'all, just seriously, take your time. Um, so, endovaginal transducer, higher frequency transducer, right? So you get, because it's close to the organs, and so you get better image quality. Ovaries are anterior and medial, anterior and medial to the iliac vessels. Right? Remember that the iliac was kind of down further than the screen? Yeah. So they're anterior and they're inside the iliacs. External pressure applied to the lower abdomen will definitely improve the ability to visualize ovaries. So when you're doing endovaginal ultrasound, I have much better luck when I push on the outside that kind of pushes the organs down onto the probe, and I can see the ovaries that way much easier. That improved my ovarian capture rate by like 30%. The trigger on the transducer is actually pointing towards the floor, right? You guys all know that one. So the indicator's on the other side. Yeah. Like shooting a gun. It's a terrible analogy, I know, but, and then when you go, when, when, if the gun's in your right hand, and then you're gonna go from sagittal to coronal, Pulp Fiction style. Yeah. That's how I remember that. Because the indicator is going to the patient's right leg. Okay? And then, that's how he shoots the gun sideways rather than like this. He puts it sideways. Uh, and then, obese patients are more difficult to scan even when using... Now, obese patients are, generally speaking, more difficult to scan in general, right? But it turns out there's a couple situations in which they're not. Endovaginal ultrasound is the equalizer when it comes to obesity. So, you can have a patient who's, you know three or four hundred kilograms, and you can actually, <laughs> you can actually see the, uh, the uterus actually quite well. As long as you have someone to help with the legs, you can see the, once you're in the vagina though, 
I mean, it's the equalizer. You can see the uterus and the ovaries actually quite easily. You may have to really push on the outside really hard to get the ovaries to come down, but that's the idea. Much better than transabdominally, forget about it. The other situation I find that to be somewhat true is with vascular stuff. Uh, so in patients, even if patients got like tree trunks for legs, you can get in there and you can rule out a DVT relatively easily, even in larger patients, generally speaking. So um, that's obviously not the case when it comes to doing fast scans. When you have a patient who's really, really large and fat, the, the images look terrible. So um, usually, not always, but usually. So, so just keep that in mind. Don't, don't necessarily